I have a question for you, and this is a very important question, because in our Christian culture, I don't think this question is asked enough. It's assumed, it's not asked. Is getting saved, is getting saved the end of the journey? Is getting saved the end of the journey? Some of you have walked the aisle. Some of you have signed a card. Some of you have raised a hand. Some of you have cried a tear. Some of you have prayed a prayer. I personally pulled my car over in Ohio, repented of everything I did, and I asked Christ into my life back in 1989. But no matter how you did it, you know that there was a moment, some people would say it's over a course of time, but there was this encounter with the living God where he entered your life and it's been changed radically forever. The question is, was that it? And because you had that moment, maybe that year or that period of time, because you had that, have you arrived? Is the battle over? Is salvation a one-time thing and then you just go back into your normal life? Or do you still, even after that, do you still find yourself stumbling Wondering at times if the initial moment of salvation actually stuck. I'm not sure it stuck. I believe, personally, what we're going to find today, I believe God designed your walk of faith to periodically allow there to be times of massive failure. Inconsistencies. And I'd say even sometimes sinful rebellion, He'll allow it to happen so he can use those failures to wake your heart back up to your need of him. Once we get saved, we don't lose our need of him. God doesn't save you and then you're done, you're good. God saves you so you will now begin to walk with him. Salvation is for the purpose of relationship, not for the purpose of, I got my ticket, I'm in. It's a relationship. And to remind you of that fact, God doesn't mind letting you fail along the way. It's hard to believe, but sometimes He'll let you really fail. Some of you are there right now. You have massively messed up. Some of you have been caught in sin. Some of you have been running for years and are still running from God. You come but he doesn't really talk to you because you just don't want to listen. But some of you are ready to return and come back and reignite a relationship that you thought was once long gone and dead. Some of you have repented and told God you're done running. Whatever the case, I think the question is always is, how do I really know my heart has been captured and changed by God? Especially if I come back. Some of you have said, yeah, I don't want to just keep going into this pattern where I fall, say, God, forgive me, and then I fall again. How do you know you are starting to become different? There is, theologically speaking, there's what's called justification. If you imagine a line like this, on this end, the line begins at justification. That's the moment I tell God I want him. I believe in him. And then this line goes, and the finish line 
is what we call glorification. It's when we die. In between this line is what we call the process of becoming more like Him, sanctification. And this sanctification has hills, valleys, mountains, sometimes tragedies. But all of it is to conform me into the image of Christ. Justification doesn't just jump to glorification. You have a long process of sanctification. And in that, God is trying to change your heart. And so the question for today is, how do you know if your heart is starting to be changed? Let's go to Genesis 13. We're going to look at Genesis 13 to 14, 16. I'm only going to read the first four verses, and we're going to kind of see how this happened in Abraham's life. Begins in verse 1. Genesis 13, 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. To figure out where we're at, we need to kind of do a little bit of a review. We've had a month in between his last escapade. And uh, let's just do a quick review. Now remember we said Abraham is the example of faith. He walks the life of faith. And this life begins, so if we go to this review, this is, I'm going to show you, R stands for return and repent. Go to the next slide. This is where Abram began his journey. So Ur, which is all the way in the bottom right, is where he was called by God. Went to Babylon and he went to Haran. But in this period of time, this is when God pulled him out from his people, a people that were idolatrous. They worshipped the stars and they, to a degree, they worshipped the different, uh, different deities of that time, sun god, mood god, and God called out Abram and said, follow me. Leave your people and come and follow me. It always begins there. When Jesus wants to save a person, it means he won't let you wallow in the life that you lived before. He wants to call you out. He wants you to leave and follow him. So after Abram left, he received from Haran all the way through Canaan, up and down. That's the Canaan is the promised land. He received this blessing from God in Genesis 1 through 4, where God said, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all the people. If you remember, we had a sermon how that blessing specifically is fulfilled in a descendant of his named Jesus Christ, who is a blessing to all the world. But Abraham received a blessing, and this blessing is a promise by God, a promise forever, that he will not just save you, rescue you, but he'll protect and sustain you throughout your days. Salvation is God's work, even in our lives. As we said in that sermon, it says in Philippians, he who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He who begins a good work at justification will be faithful to complete it to glorification. Even when you fail in the middle. And so the point of today is that salvation is not just a one-time work. Salvation, there's a moment when I'm saved, but there's a time when I'm being saved. I'm in the process of being delivered from who I was. And there's going to be an ultimate future of 
consummated salvation. So it's all salvation is comprehensive. Past work, a present work, and a future work. We're talking about the present work today. And in this present work, it never ends. God is always wanting to refine you and make you better. And this, I hate to say, sometimes allows for failures, both minor, minor and major failures. God will let you fall. God will let you fail. For Abram, in his moment of weakness, which we said last time, he went through a tremendous trial. In Canaan, they were experiencing a famine, and that was the promise. That's the land he was promised. But he ran to Egypt. And if you remember when he ran to Egypt, he gave his wife over to Pharaoh to be his wife. It's a horrendous story. Some people say they, oh, it wasn't a bad thing he did. In my mind, it was terrible. Both He ran from the promise, and he also lied about his wife, and she was with another man. You want to talk about devastation. It's devastating. It was devastating. For Abraham, in the moment of weakness and cowardice, he left the promised land. He allowed his wife to be taken by Pharaoh. How horrible do you think that caused Abraham to feel in those moments? Sometimes we read stories without really reflecting on the reality of the stories. I don't know if there would be a darker moment in a man's life. Losing your wife. Losing the one that God promised, there will be children coming from her. And I believe in, in even Christians' lives. God will often let you succumb to a moment of weakness where you feel you have fallen off a cliff. I'm a pastor, which means one of my jobs is to counsel. And as a counselor, I'm allowed into people's houses. I'm allowed into their, their stories that they want nobody else to see. And sometimes, I'll tell you what, even Christians have despair. But here's what you need to know, and here's what I want you to know, and if you don't get anything, this may be the most important lesson you ever learn. Failure is not a sign you've lost connection with God. It's not a sign that your salvation is gone. Like there's some denominations that teach you lose it if there's something bad. It's not necessarily true. But rather, often failure is a wake-up call for God, from God, bidding you to repent, come back to me. Sometimes the fall might be small, a lapse in judgment, a rebuke, a quick rebuke by the Holy Spirit where he wants you to change a habit, where he said, don't lie like that again. Or, you know you know when the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Sometimes it's a major failure where you've made a willful decision to ignore or disobey God even for years, saying, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need God. I got saved a long time ago. Isn't that enough? God will let you go. But then there's this thing called God's rod of discipline and dark night of the soul where you will have this hunger to come back to God and He will bid you to once again repent and return where you plead with God for mercy. And I believe that's what's happening here in Abraham's story. Look at verse 13, or chapter 13, 1 through 4 again. So Abraham... 
Abram went up from Egypt, meaning he left Egypt. He had Sarah back, his wife, and all that he had. So he was given all kind of stuff. If you remember, Pharaoh gave him all kind of stuff. And Lot with him. So Lot went back with him. The Negev is the southern part. But he's, if you notice, he's going to start traveling back up Canaan. Verse 2 just says now he's loaded with all kind of money, silver, gold. And then verse 3 says he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. He went back to the beginning. He went back to start over. What did he do when he went to the beginning? Verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He wanted to restore with God again. God didn't forget about him. God didn't quit on him. He gave him a chance. Think about how he must have felt going back to the lowest moment in his life. He gave his wife to another man. He did it in a lie so he wouldn't die. I'll bet you every second was like a year. And I'll bet you his heart was completely broken Holy surrendered as we sang on the cross. Completely broken. And then when you come out of it, when you're finally allowed back out of it, when he, imagine when he saw his wife again and she's back. I wonder if she hugged him. I don't know if I'd hug him, but he had her back. I wonder what he felt like. Can you imagine walking home with your wife for next month? What would you say to her? How could you give me to that man? I, Imagine the hurt and the pain between them. I believe God gets most people's attention. I've just seen this. God gets most people's attention by allowing your sin to hurt those you love the most. That's how he gets your attention. That's how he crushes your heart. He allows you to sin, but he allows that sin to be exposed. And when it's exposed, it doesn't just hurt you. It hurts those you love the most. And man, does that crush your heart. As I was studying this in a commentary, one commentator wrote this. It's a great question. Talking about Abraham leaving Egypt. How do you live a normal life after this? You know, so how do you live going back through the desert again and you got your wife back? How do you live a normal life again after this? And the answer is very simple to me. You don't. You change. You make a commitment. I am never going to fall into this again. Real sorrow brings real repentance, and real repentance brings life change. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about a godly sorrow. There's two kinds of sorrows. One sorrow is a worldly sorrow where you get caught, and you tell people, let's just push it under the rug, let's ignore it. A godly sorrow says this, God, I'm sorry, whatever it takes to get me right with you, I will do it. Some of you, may be there right now through your stupidity or sinfulness you've hurt those you've loved you've hurt them you've hurt them bad maybe some offensive have come to light that you were trying to hide or you crossed the line you thought you'd never cross the heart is dark when you get saved when you get saved your heart doesn't just become fully regenerated you now have to work out your salvation. And sometimes you really fall.
Or when the one you love finds out your secret sin, it will crush their soul. But man, it will crush you even worse. Have you ever hurt someone you love? Have you ever hurt someone you love? And if you have, do you just go on like nothing happened? Or do you change? I believe these moments are part of the sanctification process. God says change. Be different. Be different. True repentance, true brokenness will always bring true change. I believe it did in Abraham's life. I'll show you in three ways. Number one, it brought about a... In my mind, you're going to say, boy, how did you get that out of the passage? But just watch and I'll bring you some New Testament passages. First of all, is I think that there is a new kind of humility, a real humility Abraham now has. Did he have it before? I don't know, but he sure has it now. Starting in verse 5. So after he builds this altar, there starts to be problems in the camp. And you notice it's probably because they got a lot of money now. When you have a lot of money, you start having a lot of problems. But verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, so Lot is his nephew. Lot's been traveling with Abram everywhere. Abram kind of took Lot under his wing. It's kind of like his son. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had a lot of flocks and herds and tents. So they're rich. I mean, these guys are rich. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Those are, it's funny, I heard one writer say, here you've got Lot and Abram fighting and the non-believers are watching going, what's wrong with those believers? They've got God on their side. Why are they always mad? What's wrong with those Christians? Why are they always splitting church? Why do they got all those denominations? Just can't get along, can they? Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen, we're brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley and was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. If you go to Israel and you see the Jordan Valley, Jordan Valley goes down and it's by a river and everything around it's plush. But if you go off the Jordan Valley up, it's hill country and a lot of times it's arid. and It's just not as fertile as the Jordan Valley. So it says, and Lot, Lot saw the Jordan Valley. He saw, man, it looks good. It says it's like the land of Egypt, because Egypt was also low-lying by the Nile. Had a lot of water to water their fruits and their palm trees. And then so Lot, in verse 11, chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Well, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. We'll talk about Sodom in a little bit. but So I think what's happening here is Abram approaches Lot and he says, I'll tell you what, I don't want any strife. You choose. What do you want? He could say this, nephew, I have everything you have I've given you. Why do you keep arguing with me? Just go. go. I'm going to take the good stuff, Lot, and you just shut your mouth. 
Maybe I'll take your stuff because, I, you know, like Abram could have done that. He could have used his superiority over Lot. But he's like, Lot, whatever you want, fine, fine. I don't care. To me, true humility does this. When you see somebody who really is broken and really repents, they no longer fight for their rights. They don't come home and they say, so I heard you sin. You know why? I Just get off my back. Can't you just leave me alone? When you really are broken, you're like, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm done. True sorrow says you, there's a willingness to see justice done. Whatever you need to do to make something right, if you're truly repentive, you'll do it. You won't fight. You won't demand you just do. You won't complain that everybody's always against me. You'll say, no, it was my sin and I'm sorry. In my mind, what Abraham's doing is he's saying, I got my wife back. I'm <laughs> Lot, whatever you want, take it. I don't care. Everything else has been restored to me. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's funny, humble people, they don't argue. They just don't. Look at, go to James a second. James 3. Stay at Genesis, but watch James 3. James 3 talks about a wisdom. It's a wisdom from above. It's actually in light of the tongue. How the tongue is like a fire and the tongue causes all kind of problems and the tongue is wicked and it's bad. But then there's a then there's a wisdom that comes from heaven. A peaceable wisdom. But watch what it says starting in verse 13. This is James chapter 3, verse 13. It's kind of nice. I had a I'm feeling better I had a cold a little bit, but it made my throat a little deeper so now I sound like Ken and I can talk <laughs> a little bit more majesty. But look at James 3, verse 13. This is really cool. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, in the humility, in the brokenness of wisdom. There's a humility to true wisdom. There's not a fighting. And it goes on to say, here's what it's like. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly and spiritual, demonic. So if you're always fighting and you have jealousy, it could be demonic. Demonic? What does that mean? Demons? Wow. So some people who are argumentative and quarrelsome may be influenced by demons? Yes. Verse uh, 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. You know why you're open to reason? Because you've been crushed. I've got nothing. Wait, let's talk about it. You can tell me whatever you want. I don't need to fight anymore. I've realized I've been to the bottom of the barrel. I couldn't be any worse. God's forgiven me. So you can tell me anything. You're open to reason, full of mercy because you've been given mercy. Good fruits, impartial and sincere. In verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, in peace by those who make peace. Repentance brings peace. If we go back to Genesis, this is really interesting. I think the next thing that happens after repentance is an inward an inward uh, restoration of your soul. You're restored back to honor, the honor that you once had. 
This is the most amazing thing about repentance with God. Is he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But not only will he begin a good work, he will, he will raise you back up to the standard you have fallen from, but also sometimes even raise you above. It's so incredible. Psalm 103, he, he delivered my life from the pit, and then he crowned me with loving kindness. It doesn't mean that he, he brought me back. No, he crowned me, brought me even a little bit above. He restores honor. Watch this in Genesis chapter 13. After Lot chose himself to Jordan, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, verse 12. Go to 14. We'll talk about 13 in a second. Watch 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, one writer says, it's good to get rid of those guys that bring you down. I don't know if that's the case. Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward and eastward and westward. So Abram's looking around at this land again. Verse 15, for the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. He's, re, he's giving him the promise he originally gave him. He's reestablishing it, reconfirming it, making it solid to say, Abram, I know you've messed, I love you. I love you. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Same promise. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. It's kind of north of Jerusalem is where the oaks of Mamre is. They say this same oak is still there. It's a huge kind of gnarly tree, but it's interesting because... This book's historical. It's not based on fiction. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So he's worshiping God again because God reconfirmed the promise to him. It's funny, after you repent, Galatians says the purpose of repentance is restoration. The purpose of bringing people back is to restore them. This is an amazing promise in the book of Joel. Joel is an Old Testament book where they were running, God's people were running from him. And God wanted to get their attention, so he sent them locusts to eat all of their crops, to wake them up to say, I'm, I'm punishing you so you'll repent. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 25, and if you repent, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. This is the most incredible verse. Here's what happened. is people were running from God, so God sent a terrible pestilence. They had no crops. They're agricultural, so basically their bank account was wiped out because of their sin. And God said, if you repent, just come back to me. Not only will I give you back all that money you lost, I'll give you more. Some of you need to hear that. I'm just telling you. Some of you have sinned and like, God, God's done with me. He's forgiven me. He'll never use me again. Yes, he will. You won't believe it. You won't believe it. I think the reason he has me in ministry is because I fell so far. Now when people come into my office, I can look at them and say, God has mercy for you because he gave it to me. Christianity is not a competition. It's about people who found grace and can give it to other people. And to also know that God will give us back what we lost. He's incredible. Remember, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
But you have to be willing to come back and say, God, forgive me. And then what will happen will be this third thing. This is very interesting. We're going to have more of a talk, but I believe not only will you have restored honor, you'll be brought back, but I believe you're going to start relinquishing hatred that you have towards people that hurt you in the past. You'll just quit being angry. You'll quit holding grudges. You'll quit demanding people pay you back. You'll be done because God forgave you. There's a story, chapter 14, if you go to Genesis. So Lot took the good land. He hung out then with all the with Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 13, verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what that means is everybody around them knew these guys were bad. These guys were kind of wretched. And Lot went to live with them? You can, like if I was Abraham, I'm like, oh, Lot, what? What are you doing, man? These guys are wicked. And when we learn more about Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't go into it now, but it, there's a part that says not only were they rich, haughty, but they did detestable things. And Sodom has, is now we use that word Sodom for the word we get sodomy, and sodomy is a very bad thing. They're wicked men. But what happens in chapter 14 is the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were attacked by four big kings. The story goes these four kings basically kept attacking Sodom and Gomorrah and these other kings, five other kings, and they were kind of like the mafia. They were making them pay probably a percentage so they wouldn't destroy them. And then they got tired of paying that percentage, so they attacked those four kings. Sodom and Gomorrah attacked those four kings. Those four kings were pretty tough. So they turned on Sodom and Gomorrah and took everything they had, including Lot. Including Lot. And so if you look at verse 11 of chapter 14, it says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and they went their way, verse 12, and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So these four kings took everything. If I was Abram, I'd say, Lot, you chose your lot, man. That's, you chose Hango Sodom. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do it. But what happened in verse 13, it looks like somebody who was part of Lot's group escaped, went to Abram, told a man they took everything, and Abram got 318 of his biggest men, also got the Amorites to help him out. They went and got one back everything from Sodom and Gomorrah, and they rescued Lot. In my mind, I think if I was Abram, I wouldn't help out Sodom. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be kind to Muslims, anybody that's gay. I'm just gonna judge them. I'm a, I'm a, you know, if I'm a Republican, I'm not gonna listen to any Democrat. Why am I gonna help out them? Why would I ever help out anybody that's against an evangelical Christian? Why? I would never bake a cake for anybody that doesn't do anything. I'm not going to show any kindness. Why would he rescue Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't understand. Why would he rescue his nephew Lot who just argued and showed no appreciation? Some of us are like that as parents. We just, I'm never going to forgive my daughter and my son. They've hurt me. Have you, you yourself been forgiven by God? It's the greatest parable, I think, in a whole New Testament. Matthew 18. Matthew 18 
is the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's a very simple parable. This rich man has a servant, owes him a million dollars, forgives him because he can't pay it back. His servant said, I can't pay it back. That servant has a servant that owes him 10 bucks. And this guy who owes him 10 bucks said, I can't pay you to the servant who has just forgiven a million. The guy who's forgiven a million tells the guy 10 bucks, nope, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison until you pay me back that 10 bucks. Wait a minute, you're just forgiven a million dollars, but you're not going to let go of the $10. And then so Jesus says this, Matthew 18, 33. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Actually, look at verse 32. Then the master summoned that man and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should not have had mercy. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers. What he's saying is this. You, if you're a Christian, you had the Son of God innocently die for you. And yet you get mad at other people who hurt you? You can't forgive them? When, you know, when Jesus died for you, it says in Romans chapter 5, you're his enemy. His enemy. Sinner is enemy. But you can't let, you can't pray for your enemies? There's a very interesting uh, chapter. It's, it's this question is here. Go to the next slide. This is how we should be thinking about those who are far from God and will not repent. We need to, instead of being angry at them, we need to have pity for them. Romans 12 says that we need, vengeance isn't ours, it's God's. And then it ends in 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't respond to the evil person the way they respond to you. Have pity on them. Why? Because you've been forgiven. We're very, like I, I don't want our nation, I don't want our nation to fall, you know, to, to abort babies. I don't want our nation to be celebrating homosexual marriages and transgenderism, but I think as Christians we need to pray for them, every one of them, and be kind to them. And when they want our help, give it to them. Relinquish, get rid of your anger and your hatred. Because we overcome evil by being good. The truth of the matter is, we're saved, but salvation never stops until we're glorified. You're always being conformed into His image. And when you fall, it's purposeful. When you sin, it's purposeful. It's so you'll be broken and sick of yourself, and you'll come back to Jesus.